Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to our special program series held in the Accessible World Auditorium. The date is Tuesday, June 28, 2011. As Bonnie has states, when I began researching the life of Helen Keller, I kept coming across information about a deafblind woman named Laura Bridgman. Like any good and curious researcher, I was eager to learn more about her. I have found a gold mine about her and feel she deserves a part of this presentation all to herself. How did she lose her sight and hearing? What part did Samuel Gridley Howe play in her life, outlook on men and education? What did she hope to do as an adult? What fears plagued her? How did she learn language and what did she do later in life? Did she ever meet Helen Keller and what did she think of her? What part did Charles Dickens play in her life? For answers to these and other fascinating facts about a woman who should always be remembered as the groundbreaker she truly was, join me for what I know will be a fascinating look at the life of Laura Bridgman. For those of you who are looking forward to an hour learning about Helen Keller, she will be given her due in part two of this special presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great privilege and honor at this time to introduce the book lady, Bonnie Blose. Bonnie, the microphone is yours. Well, good evening, everyone. Imagine this scene in your mind. You live on a farm with your parents and two little brothers. And most of the time it's very quiet, but today is very different. It's different from any day you've ever lived and can ever remember. You're traveling with your parents and you have them all to yourself for a change. Those brothers are at home with someone else. And you're going somewhere, but you have no idea where. That's fine with you, though, because you're with your parents and you know that they've always expressed their love for you. They care about you, and you know you're safe with them. When you get to your destination, you feel the sound of strange vibrations through your feet as strangers come into the room where you wait with your parents. It seems you wait a lot and for a long time. And after a while, you hope that someone will notice you, maybe come and play with you, or that maybe your parents will suddenly decide that they'd like to leave after all. Your parents get up and come over to you and they give you a hug and a kiss, or at least your mom does. And suddenly they're leaving you. You don't know why, they can't explain. You can't hear or see. It breaks their hearts, but there is no way they can make you understand why this is happening. That's just a little of what eight-year-old Laura Bridgman experienced on the first day of school. For those of you here who attended a school for the blind or some other school where you lived through the week or maybe for months at a time, you can feel for Laura. But of course, your situation was a little bit different because you knew your parents loved you. They could tell you so. They could tell you they were looking forward to your first visit home and they could tell you they'd miss you while you were gone. Laura Bridgman was the third of nine children, 
born to Daniel and Harmony Downer Bridgman. Her father was a farmer, and he was also a town selectman who would eventually serve two sessions in the state legislature of New Hampshire. Laura was born on December 21, 1829. At birth, she exhibited some strange movements. She had twitches of her arms and legs for no reason that anyone could really determine. Many people thought at the time that this caused a lot of weakness in her body. Suddenly at the age of 20 months, those twitches stopped just as suddenly as they had begun. She had four months of a normal toddler's life. And in that four months, she was playful. She learned her first words, and she enjoyed playing with her two older sisters, Mary and Kalina. At the age of two, all that changed. All three contracted scarlet fever. Laura was the only one who would survive. Mary and Kalina died within two days of each other. They were four and six. It is doubtful that Laura ever knew they died or why. Doctors disagreed and they speculated about whether Laura had had scarlet fever. And as experts often do, when they look back on these things, they had a variety of thoughts and responses. Most thought that, some thought that she had meningitis or even encephalitis because she had some of those symptoms. And one doctor speculated that he thought she had uh, encephalitis only. Uh, the others thought that she had meningitis. But because she exhibited two symptoms, sensitivity to light and skin rashes, most people looking back on it believe that she had scarlet fever. In 1832, only 10% of the population in this country ever sought a doctor's help at a time of illness. Many people thought doctors would only make them worse if they were sick, and sometimes that really seemed to be true. Sometimes people waited too long to go to a doctor and were at death's door by the time they did. And you didn't go to a doctor back then, as long as there were home remedies that you could use because you could save money that way. Doctors were expensive. If home remedies were of no help and you did have access to a doctor and were willing to go to one, then that's what you chose to do. Doctors had several methods of treatment open to them. None of them sound very appealing to me, and I don't think they will to you either. They weren't very encouraging. Doctors had a choice of bleeding, blistering, sweating, cleansing, and medicating. Often medications were poisonous, although they didn't always know that then, found out the hard way, as we often do with many things. Scarlet fever was called the plague among children. As Laura was recovering, she often said the word dark, and this may have been her way of saying she could no longer see. The last word her mother ever heard her say clearly was book. And that's ironic, considering that later she was always interested in language and words and books. After her illness, she was left with no hearing and just a little vision. Her sense of taste and smell were almost gone completely, except for very strong tastes or smells like onions or ammonia. Until she was seven, she could see some light and colors, and some people thought that she could see some shapes, but no one really knows for sure. One day, while she was playing, she ran into the spindle of her mother's spinning wheel, 
which caused her to lose the remaining vision in her right eye. Laura had a great mother. She taught her to knit, sew, churn butter, braid, and make little tarts. Remember, Harmony was the wife of a very busy farmer, and a farm wife was just as busy as the farmer was. Work on a farm was never ending, and the days were long. Harmony spent her days making soap, candles, and she took care of the family bees, and they also had sheep that she had to care for, in addition to caring for the household. And oh yes, she did one other thing. She made all the family's clothes. Imagine our doing that today. Laura had two little brothers born close together during the time she was recovering. Daniel and Harmony were very formal people. They didn't show affection to their children, and that might have been because they had already experienced the heartbreak of losing two of them. They would lose others in the years to come, and they would lose them to more scarlet fever. Like many children do, left to her own devices, Laura found ways to entertain herself. She never had a doll. She was never given one. But like most little girls, she wanted to take care of something. And so she adopted as a doll a boot that had belonged to her father. And it sounds very strange. But what she did was put into it all the things she treasured. Stones, feathers, shells, anything else she found that she happened to really care for. And Laura was very fortunate in another way. She had a wonderful best friend. That best friend was a neighbor man named Asa Tenney. Asa was strange, at least he was considered so by the community, but they accepted him. He helped farmers when he could, but he was odd in that he wore old-fashioned clothes, and he wasn't much into people or socializing with adults. But he loved Laura, and she loved him, and he made it his mission, almost a calling, to keep her connected with the world of living things and nature. They went for long walks, and he showed her flowers and plants and showed her life by giving her baby rabbits and lambs to hold. One day, speaking of that lamb, he began bringing a bottle of milk with him, and he showed Laura how to feed that lamb. She loved doing that. She looked forward to that every day they went out. But, of course, there was a day that came when the lamb didn't need to be fed bottled milk anymore. The lamb had grown beyond it. Just one of the many times in Laura's life when something happened, no one could explain. Laura searched Asa's pockets for that milk bottle and couldn't find it. She got really angry. But Asa had no way to explain why he didn't have the milk today or that day and why the lamb was fine and no longer needed to be fed. Sometimes she learned the hard way not to do something in a particular manner. Once when she was holding a baby rabbit, she held it too tightly, causing it to die. She didn't understand that you could hurt an animal in many ways. And, of course, again, no one could explain. She learned by trial and error. Another time, she threw the family cat into the fire. And it was rescued by her mother just in time. But that cat was badly burned and decided that maybe... The Bridgman household wasn't where it wanted to live anymore. Asa accepted Laura as she was, and if we stop and think for a minute what it might have been like if Asa had been Laura's father instead of Daniel, we might not be here tonight talking about Laura at all. Because as I said, Asa thought that natural things and the natural world and everything in it was all that Laura really needed to know.
he didn't really hold with much of this book learning stuff. So think of the turn life could have taken if Asa had been her father instead of Daniel. They worked out a kind of sign language. If she touched her lips, it meant she was thirsty. And if she sat down on one of their walks, she was tired. If she pulled Asa to go with her, she wanted to show him something. A pat on the back meant something you had done was bad, or something was bad. And a pat on the head meant something was very good. Her mother taught her many other things, too. She taught her to set a table, and not to take anything that belonged to someone else. Later, when Dr. Howe, Samuel Gridley Howe, was in Laura's life, and he was for a great majority of her life, he didn't give her mother credit for that kind of teaching. He really wanted credit for an awful lot. And he didn't really ever stop and think that Harmony really did teach Laura things, that she had seven years with her before he had her with him for so long. Farmers like Laura's father were always very busy, and Laura wasn't close to her father. He never learned to communicate with her by using the manual alphabet, as her mother and brother Addison did later. What she remembers of her father was being punished for misbehavior. Since he couldn't communicate with her through language, his efforts often went from first stamping his foot really hard so she could feel the vibrations and would understand she was doing something wrong and that he wanted her attention. If that didn't work, he would resort to physical force or restraints of some kind. And of course, there was a lot of frustration because he just couldn't communicate with her. This led Laura to a legacy of fear of men she had for her entire life. Not all men, but many. She was much more open than willing to have relationships with women, much more willing to go up and hug them. Each spring, the local farmers had to organize their financial records, and they often did this by getting a local college student to come and help with all of this work that they had to do. One year, when Laura was about seven, James Barrett, a student at Dartmouth, which was nearby, came to help her father with his finances. He was curious about Laura. As he watched her set the table, he wondered how she could do all the things she did. When her mother told him what had happened, he went back to school absolutely enthralled. And he couldn't wait to tell one of his professors, a professor of surgery, Dr. Ruben, Ruben Diamond Mussey, about her. It was Mussey who knew Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe, the director of the Perkins Institution that had just been formed. Dr. Mussey met Laura, and right away, he really got the lay of the land. He knew that if he was going to get anywhere with Laura, he had to get past Asa. Asa had a lot of power. He wasn't her father, but as I said, he loved her. And Mussey did a very important thing, and... He was smart to know that he should, and he did do it. He knew how important Asa was to Laura and how much she meant to him. And he could have ignored her. He could have said, well, she's not related to him. He's a neighbor. I don't have to listen to anyone but her parents. But he was smart. He did more. He told Asa how much what he had done with Laura would help her in the coming years. And Asa had done a lot. At a time of great isolation from the world, when Laura could have become even more isolated than she already was, he kept her natural curiosity about the world alive. 
He taught her about living things and to value life itself. But most of all, he kept her physically active, getting her to know her physical surroundings and to care about them and be curious about them. He fired her imagination, and he kept alive that part of her that would one day have all those endless questions for teachers as she grew. Asa said that Laura lived in a room with no windows or doors, and that he would make those windows and he would make those doors for her to bring the world into her. Samuel Gridley Howe, who was to play such an important part in Laura's life, was a medical doctor by profession. He had also dabbled in journalism, and he was an adventurer. But most of all, he was an educator who loved any new things that he was doing. And at this point in his life, he had come back from Greece and had worked as a surgeon in Greece, and now he was beginning as the director of the Perkins Institution. He had never wanted a medical practice, and he had already, as he said, satisfied his spirit for adventure by living and working in Greece, although he had many other adventures in his life, which I won't include here because there's just too much I could include. But after his seven years as working for a commissioned surgeon in Greece, he came back to the States and was asked to direct the New, in the New England Institution for the Education of the Blind in 1829. Dr. Howe always studied whatever he was doing thoroughly so that he would know how to do it best. He went to Europe to study schools for the blind, and the first school that ever opened for blind people was in France in 1784, followed a few years later by schools in England and Scotland. When he returned to the States, he started his school in a way that most teachers today, or administrators too, would never want to have to do. Imagine this. He started his school with no building, he didn't have any students, he didn't have finances, and he didn't have any teachers. Although I read somewhere that he did have two blind teachers that he brought back, but that was only mentioned once, so I don't know if there's any truth to that. While he was in Europe, he learned that only one in a hundred blind people there found any type of gainful employment. And Dr. Howe was in many ways a peculiar person and a strange person, but he thought that education was a birthright, and he heard while in Europe about blind beggars and other blind people who ended up in asylums for the indigent. Howe believed that all the resources, skills, and abilities that every person had should be utilized to the fullest, and that if a person couldn't do anything, they should be helped by those who could help them, who, who would be able to do that if someone couldn't help themselves. There were deafblind people before Laura that were, at least, attempts were made to educate. But some of those had other disabilities. And there was one other important thing they didn't realize at the time, and they learned it as time went on. And that is that if you're young, say the age of Laura, eight, or Helen Keller, who was seven, it's easier to learn language. And they didn't know that. They thought that they could teach language to deaf people at any age. But attempts to teach language fail if you were close to puberty. It was very hard to learn language after that if you were deaf. Those who taught the deaf found that you just couldn't do that very much. And uh, people could learn a few words, but it was almost um, non-existent. Dr. Howe began his school with six students in his father's home. 
For the most part, they were children of wealthy artisans and farmers, although he did try to find poor students, too. The Perkins School was originally called, well, they called it by several different names, but the one that I heard most often was the New England Asylum for the Blind. What a moniker that is. It was founded by Dr. John D. Fisher. The name was changed when Colonel Thomas Perkins donated a mansion in which it was relocated. Perkins was uh, a guy who was supposed to be a, uh, a trader in opium, by the way, so he was interesting in his own right. Later, when the school was moved to South Boston, it was renamed after Perkins. One of Dr. Howe's biggest challenges was how to go about teaching Laura language. He began by taking familiar objects like that spoon, fork, and knife I mentioned before in the table setting, and he labeled each with embossed letters. Braille wouldn't be adopted in the States until 1868, 16 years after its inventor, Louis Braille, died. But through the system Hal created, Laura was taught that letters were as different as the objects themselves. After showing her an object with a label attached that had the embossed letters, she was then shown the same embossed letters on pieces of paper independent of the object to which the former ones were attached. In this way, she would eventually learn that the labels on the paper could be selected and then matched to an object by her, the beginning of communication. She learned that letters could exist independently and made up words, and that they had specific meanings like knife, fork, cup, or spoon. When she could find the labels and put them together to form the word that had been on the object, they showed her that those labels contained words made up of individual letters. They would mix them up, and she had to put them in order. She thought it was a great game. Dr. Howe had several metal casts made in which she could fit individual letters in grooves so that they would be easier for her to find. It was then time to add the big part, the manual alphabet, to bring spelling and the manual alphabet together in order for her to have true communication and understanding of language. She learned words letter by letter, and the teacher selected them from the middle casts. After Laura was shown a letter, the letter would be spelled into her hand manually so that she would begin to know the manual alphabet. Then her teacher would give her the letter again to show her that that was what they were talking about. And then she would learn that they went together. So, first she had the letter, then the manual alphabet letter spelled into her hand, and then the letter again. After this was done with individual letters, her teacher would do the threefold process with complete words. Again, first the word, then the word spelled into her hand manually, and then the word from the metal cast being shown to her again. They followed this up with her learning parts of speech through demonstrations of things like opening and shutting a door, for example. Then the word would be spelled into her hand, followed by the opening and closing of a door again, so she would know they were connected. And they always did this consistently in the same order. It's a fascinating process to read about. And it really made me understand just how time-consuming and intensive this was. This process was repeated with all the parts of speech. On July 24, 1839, Laura wrote her na own name legibly in print for the first time. 
because she was also working on handwriting. But when she put sentences together, she mentioned objects first. Instead of saying, for example, I want bread like we would, she would say, bread give Laura. It sounded more as if the object was doing something to her. She thought if you could be restless, why not be strongless too? And she said if something could be restful, was it possible that you could be weakful too? She wanted to know if you could be weakful, and of course they told her that no, there was no such word, and there was no such word like strongless. If you said that waves were jarring the ground, she thought only in terms of a jar, because of course she was familiar with what a jar was. She knew that as an object, but she had no idea what jarring meant otherwise. She had her first math lesson on June 20, 1840, and in just 19 days she could add a column of figures amounting to 30. In 1841, she began to keep her own personal journal. She started writing poems. They weren't very good poems, and I'll talk about one of them a little bit near the end of this presentation. But she started writing those in 1867. If she was given a math problem, you remember those word problems we used to have where they would say, they would tell you to subtract something from something else, a bushel of apples or something like that, from and tell you that you should give a fourth of them, what would a fourth of them be? Uh, I'm giving a very bad example, but I'm sure you remember those problems. Many of us hated them. <laughs> Laura personalized those problems. She didn't see them as problems independent of her, and she wondered why people thought these applied to her. If she came to what she thought was the end of a sentence and there was a complete thought before the sentence ended, she stopped right there, not realizing there could be more to a sentence. If you said, for example, you, m you must not think because you are blind, she would ask why a blind person was being told they weren't supposed to think. The sentence might have continued as, you must not think because you are blind, you should not think. She thought that people could hear things far away if they just listened hard enough. And often she would say to people, be really quiet, listen. Listen really hard. Tell me if you can hear Niagara Falls, for example. She didn't get it, that Niagara Falls would never have been heard. It was miles and miles away. She didn't understand you had to be near a thing to hear it. Laura was always afraid of animals, particularly dogs. And she really resented the fact that dogs could hear and she could not. She asked questions of her teachers endlessly. Things like, who made water? Why didn't our hearts stop? Why flies and horses didn't go to bed like we did? And why fish didn't have legs? Laura wanted to know if think, guess, and understand meant the same thing. Why didn't the waterfall stop? What was air made of? To learn handwriting that I mentioned before, she, uh, she folded a piece of paper in half and put a piece of pasteboard in between the two halves. The pasteboard had grooves about an inch apart, so that she could write letters. To learn the outlines of the letters in print, the outlines were made with the prick of a pin so she could feel them. Laura stayed in touch with her family and made visits home with teachers. Because, of course, in that day, the teachers that worked with Laura were almost exclusively hers. They worked with her for several hours at a time, but they were hers to work with on her own. That was quite a luxury. Her mother came to see her six months after she began her education at Perkins 
and Laura didn't really know her at first until she was shown enough objects so that she connected that this was this woman who was her mother and that she had grown up with her. Laura was very literal. She had trouble with words that had more than one meaning, like the word nail, for example. She thought blacksmiths were black men, and when she got the mumps, she got them only on one side. She thought she had mump. One of the first things Dr. Howe did that, uh, with Laura when she first came to school before they ever got into learning language was administer a kind of electric shock with magnets. He thought, and he had a lot of strange ideas, but he thought that this might restore her damaged sense of taste. Why he wanted that one to return as opposed to any other, I don't know, but that's what he hoped for. Anyway, it didn't work. Laura Bridgman was always Samuel Howe's grand experiment. Scientific experiment, if you will. Her schedule each day consisted of first, believe it or not, according to what I read, and I can't believe this wasn't a mistake, but I'm going to tell it to you as I read it. She got up in the morning, and imagine this. You get up in the morning, and the first thing you do is have arithmetic class. I'll tell you, that is not how I would want to start my day, any day. This was followed by breakfast and then domestic duties. However, the domestic duties like cleaning rooms and making your bed and things like that were done only by the girls. Remember, we're talking the early 1800s. The boys went outside. They were allowed to go outside and have some physical exercise. Then she had an hour of conversation with her teacher, followed by geography. Then there was an hour of knitting and sewing followed that. Although there was an hour of physical exercise each day, Laura would go on a long five- to six-mile walk after dinner each day. Dr. Howe really believed in exercise. He believed that we should be eating plain food, too, so the meals were not the best. Laura didn't ever eat very much, but the meals were not very enjoyable. He said he felt that if you ate very stimulating food and rich food, that it would disrupt the harmony of your body. And he said that he thought rich food caused illnesses and early death and lots of other things that people just didn't need. So he just wanted people to eat plain food, and that's all he served. It was probably a financial consideration, too, but he was really a believer in that. Another thing that he believed in for everyone at the institution, at the school, including himself, was cold baths. And he meant cold baths not only in summer when it was warm, but in the winter when it was very cold. Some of the parents complained about that, but he stuck to it and prevailed in the end. And if there was time before bed, after all of this stuff all day long, there was some quiet time for some knitting. Samuel Gridley Howe was a great believer in what was called phrenology. Put very simply, the amount of intellect you had was determined by how large or how many bumps you had on your head. Followers of this believed that physical, moral, or intellectual ability resided in specific parts of the brain. For example, moral or what would eventually be spiritual development was at the top, and the physical was at the bottom, at the brainstem. Another thing that Samuel Howe did that was very strange was 
because of this phrenology was that he collected plaster casts of skulls, and he had hundreds of them in his office. We always say that history is very important, and I'm here to tell you that it's true. Not anything that's very surprising to anyone. But the reason I say it here is that we have a wealth of knowledge about Laura today because of two things. Annual reports that Dr. Howe submitted in order to get appropriations for the school and a daily journal kept by all of her teachers. Remember, she was that grand experiment. He also would have the students do exhibits for the public on Saturdays. And that was a way of raising money, too. And he did that so that the public could come and see the students, well, perform their reading, writing, arithmetic, and geography skills, anything they were learning. Laura was part of this, too. And she was part of the reports from the time she was 8 until she was 21. Except for two years when Dr. Howe felt there was very little new to say about her in the written report. I think there may very well have been things to say, but sometimes he wasn't real happy with Laura. Because in those two years, for example, Laura was beginning to exercise free will, and she was beginning to want answers to questions Howe didn't want her to have information about. Teachers, as I said, kept daily reports of everything she did, and it wasn't just schoolwork they talked about in those, in those journals. They also talked about her behavior, not even just behavior that she exhibited, but her thoughts and actions. She almost didn't have any part of herself to herself, in a way. Everything was monitored and remarked upon. She wasn't perfect by any stretch. She was just a normal girl. She broke things. She shoved students. She grew impatient with other students, especially those she felt were inferior to her mentally. She was really keenly against anybody who wasn't mentally sharp. She lied occasionally. As punishment for misbehavior, Howe asked her teachers to withdraw affection from her and leave her alone until she saw the light and was willing to apologize for whatever she'd done. When she first began her education, she lived in Dr. Howe's home with him and his sister, Jeanette. Some of the other students resented this preferential treatment she got. But in 1843, Laura's life was going to undergo vast change. Samuel Howe got married to Julia Ward. And if that name's a familiar one, of course, it's because she wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic and she was a suffragette. Um, and the Battle Hymn of the Republic was, of course, written during the Civil War. She was a daughter of a wealthy New York banker, and they would have six children together, including a daughter, Laura Elizabeth, who became a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Laura had great difficulty understanding this relationship, and most of all, how it would affect her relationship with Samuel Gridley Howe. And so she asked a lot of questions about love. In what way did he love her, for example? She wondered if she would be able to continue to live with him after he married and whether his wife would like her. She asked if Samuel loved Julia like he loved God or like God loved him. And she was told yes. And she was asked if the kind of love that Samuel felt for her or that she felt for him was like God, and they said no. That only confused her more. Teachers were 
assigned to work with her one-on-one, -on -one, as I said. So they became very close to her. And often what happened in those days was that after several years, a teacher would suddenly leave because she would be getting married. That happened to Laura over and over. This caused great heartache for her because most of all what she feared in the world was being left alone. So when she lost these teachers one by one, she lost not just a teacher, but a cherished and trusted friend because, of course, she had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with them. It happened with every teacher she ever had, and it only increased her fear of one day being all alone. How would she care for herself? She always wanted to marry, but she was always told that, although girls were at this time taught to keep house, that she wouldn't be allowed to marry. She was encouraged to live a life in which she did nice things for others, and it was hoped that her feeling of being able to live a life of service in doing things for others would divert her from this great desire to marry. It never did, really. She expressed the hope once that she might keep house for her brother Addison because he was going to become a doctor, but that never happened. While Dr. Howe was off on his European lecture tour and honeymoon, which, by the way, lasted for 18 months, Laura began to struggle with questions about religion. Part of the reason they stayed in Europe for that long was because Julia became pregnant with their first child, and so they thought it would be best to stay there. Laura always looked to him as her anchor. She wrote letters to him filled with her questions, which she really needed answered. Like all young girls and boys, too, entering teen years, she wanted to be a grown-up. And usually when that happens, we choose one thing we really feel would open the door and take us through that curtain and into that room or through that door that would make us feel like we are a grown-up. And for her, it was religion. She wanted to have answers about religion. But Hal had told her teachers before leaving Europe, or her teacher, that all questions about religion that she wanted answered should just be put on the back burner and that he would answer them when she returned. But imagine what it would be like to be with her every day and know that she keeps asking questions and you're told you can't answer them. Much as he had attempted to teach her about life in positive ways, the wider world intruded. There wasn't any way that he could keep that from happening. For instance, sometimes students at the school died, and so experiences with death led her to questions about what would happen to her. Several friends did die. One of them, a boy named Oren, was one that she was particularly fond of, and she wanted to know what happened to him. Ironically, the very curiosity that Samuel Gridley Howe so admired about her when she was first a student at the school in the beginning was the very thing he chose to ignore as Laura became her own person, exercising her own free will and beginning to have a personality that was really emerging for people to experience in knowing her. She had a great need to know, and he never understood her emotional makeup and her needs he thought of her too much as a scientific experiment. He believed he could mold her according to his own beliefs and his will. He was called the father of her mind and the Columbus of her mind. Her teachers weren't allowed to answer any of her questions if he said no. So they remained unanswered until one day when some evangelical people came to visit her. And the way this happened is that sometimes Laura would be in a class and a couple of visitors would come by, 
and they would they would meet her and watch her and and see what she was doing and they were allowed to do that because of course there was always a great need for money and she was a good way to get it anyway when they came by they gave her some of the religious information she wanted now i don't exactly know how this happened because they didn't know uh, the manual alphabet i don't think at least i wasn't able to find out they did so i'm not sure how it took place but she did get the information, or at least some of it, that she wanted, but it wasn't the information Hal wanted her to have. He didn't want her to hear about negative things like the judgment of God or anything like that. Finally, after she wrote to him, her first letter wasn't answered, so she wrote another, asking him some more questions, saying, please answer my questions, I need to have answers. Well, he finally did, but this is what he did. He painted a really positive view of religion, telling her that God wanted her to be happy all the time, and that's what God wanted for everybody. But he didn't address her other concerns, the ones that she had about death and heaven and what would happen to her, or any of the other things, anything that was negative. Again, remember, he didn't want her to concentrate on anything negative or unhappy because that took energy away from other parts of the body and would cause disruption and cause the body to be out of balance with itself and he didn't want that of course things were pretty much out of balance as that as it was he told her that her mind was too weak and that she was too young to understand religion imagine being told when you were her age something like that that was the last thing she wanted to hear teachers sometimes know best just like parents do and Laura's teacher at the time felt that if Laura was asking questions, then she was probably ready for answers. I have to agree. She was dismissed from her job shortly after Samuel returned, although he said he didn't blame her for Laura's learning about religion in the way he didn't want her to learn it from those evangelical visitors. But nevertheless, she was let go. Howe was in a tight spot in regard to religion. He really was. Much of the money that was donated to this school as you can imagine, came from religious organizations. So he had to walk a fine line. And so he did a few things along religious lines, like have morning and evening prayer with students. And that was a time in which he read a couple scripture verses, and then he said nothing more, really, allowing them to figure out what they meant for themselves. He didn't really want to go into great detail, but he wanted to do the right thing for those people that were giving money and were religious he required every student to attend both morning and evening services each Sunday. The younger students went to churches their parents preferred, and the older students could choose where they wanted to go for themselves. In all his efforts to keep Laura from hearing the ideas of salvation and the judgment of God, uh, to keep her from hearing those things, because he didn't want her to hear about that stuff, he never realized that he was manipulating her just as surely as anybody else could have and that her view of religion was just as stilted, maybe, or formed by them as it would have been by him. In all of his efforts to not give her answers and to give her the version that he wanted to give her, he never realized he was manipulating her view of religion, or if he did, he never said so. In her mind, Laura fused Dr. Howe and God together when she finally heard about God. And remember, she was really going through a lot of loneliness. She was a very um, scared person. 
and she was wanting an anchor. Dr. Howe had always been that for her, but when he went to Europe and came back, he got involved with other causes, and he wasn't nearly as available for her as he had been, and didn't take nearly the interest in her that he had before. And so God became a personal friend to her. Where Hal was distant, God was close in her mind. She saw God as a close personal friend and made him her anchor. And she decided that he would keep her safe from all her fears. Hal never understood the powerlessness that was a part of Laura's world and life. And partly, probably, that was because he was a man living in a man's world. Very much so at the time. He could go out and create the world he wanted for himself, but Laura was powerless and vulnerable, not just because of her lack of vision, but because she was a woman living in that man's world. And, of course, there were women who had achieved great things, but most women didn't. I mentioned earlier that she wrote poetry. One of her poems was called Holy Home. And in this one, she called Earth our wintry desert home and said that we on Earth could not appreciate the beauty of the holy home in heaven because we were blinded by our minds. Laura, in her later years, became very moralistic. She criticized the governor of Massachusetts for sending men to war. She opposed drinking. She always liked order and uniformity, and she would go through her room and make sure that everything in her surroundings was exactly as she had left it. In great detail. She wrote to her sisters and brothers, offering them advice on diet and hygiene. They never said whether they asked for it. I guess she was the type of person who might have offered it whether they asked or not. She told her brothers that she didn't care much for that hunting they did either. When Hal returned from Europe, he got involved, as I said, in other causes. He knew Dorothea Dix, and he wanted to help prisoners and he wanted to help people who were mentally ill, too, or mentally um, challenged or feeble, as they would have said in those days. He became interested in educating freed slaves. On the grounds of Perkins, he started a school for the mentally handicapped. He made an unsuccessful bid for a congressional seat, and he did help his good friend Horace Mann, the founder of the public school system as we pretty much know it today, win a seat for himself in Congress. It might be wrong to say that his interest in Laura and his, as the grand experiment, died the day she learned those ideas about religion from the evangelical visitors, but it is a fact that as Hal became more interested in other causes, he saw Laura a lot less. In 1850, when Laura's last teacher left to marry, Dr. Hal decided not to replace her. There was a sad thing about that, though, because George Bond, who was the groom in this case, had been coming to visit Laura's teacher, and of course Laura was often there. And Laura mistakenly believed, even though she had been told that she would never be allowed to marry, that this man was coming to see her, that he was courting her. So she was quite heartbroken. As the years went by, Samuel Gridley Howe changed his mind about institutional settings and institutional schools. He did say that he felt they were a necessary evil, but he wanted a time to come when students would only be living in institutions like that for short periods of time. He always encouraged the students to write letters home and to visit their families. Eventually, he built small cottages in order that students might have a semblance of family life 
by living in them with matrons or house parents. Part of the reason that he also built the cottages was because many students wrote to him and said that they just really had a tough time on the outside. Remember, this was a time when, even like today, uh, what blind people could do sometimes lagged behind reality. It was a time of industrial growth, of mechanization, of factories being built and uh, products being made that way. And many of the things that blind people could do were being done by machines, and they were being left behind. And they also had to deal with prejudice. So they weren't really getting the jobs, and they weren't really making it in the world as he had hoped they would. Oh, we had one student who became a mathematician, and he had hoped that some of the boys would become choir masters and organists and fill pulpits and become counselors. Um, and he thought the others would probably do manual labor, like make mattresses and things like that. But in reality, they really couldn't find gainful employment many times. And so he was disturbed by that. So he decided to build these cottages partly to give these students who wrote to him and pleaded to come back a place to live. He started an employment um, situation for them, too. It was actually a workshop, and they earned a little money. It was a subsidized employment program kind of thing, and they did make a little money, but not very much. Laura actually moved into one of these cottages in 1872 and actually lived at Perkins for 52 years, and that was in part thanks to an endowment established by Samuel Howe and his friend Dorothea Dix. She did try living with her family when her education ended, but her family, no matter how caring and loving they were, and they did love her, couldn't give her the kind of attention she had received while at school. Remember, she had people to answer her questions and teachers right by her side, and to go back to her life with her family was very lonely because there was no one there to walk with her and talk with her about things and tell her things. She grew so sick when she was home that her mother actually feared that she would die, and so she asked Dr. Howe if she could return to Perkins, and he allowed her to do that. Laura's wish in the last years of her life was that a kindergarten be established at the school, which was fulfilled. In later years, she did do some public work for the school, would appear in public, and she helped other students at the school, but she was never a paid employee. She was called a teacher sometimes, but she didn't get a salary to go with it. She continued to sign autographs and knit and sew and crochet. She sold purses and other pieces of her handiwork, making about $100 a year. She could never have lived on that income and been independent, but she did at least have a little money and a sense of having the satisfaction of earning a little bit. She bought small items of clothing and apparel for herself, and she gave gifts to friends. Occasionally, when she was out walking with someone, she would ask them if they saw a poor person, and if they, could, if they did see one, she asked them to give them a few coins. Dr. Howe's marriage to Julia was not a happy one. Uh, she was 18 years younger than he was, and he wanted, she wanted a career of her own as a writer and lecturer, which he opposed. If Hal thought Laura had failed in being his model of possibility for other children and all deaf people to come, deaf blind people especially, it's my belief that he failed her much, much more than she failed him. 
She was just a girl living a life who became a woman with her own mind and her own personality. His biggest mistake was not in accepting what Laura had become. A person in her own right with her own beliefs, preferences, strengths, and weaknesses. He was so wrapped up in that experiment and the idea of that mold that she would fill that all that possibility, he never appreciated her for herself alone. He said his expectations for her after the experiment ended were, unre were unreasonable and unrealistic, and that because of her physical handicap, she was mentally and morally flawed. Well, if he really believed that, then he would have also believed at the very start that she would never really be able to do very much because at the very start, she was deaf and she was blind. She was still those things later, and she was those things then. He didn't blame her or her parents. Of course, remember, there was the heredity thing going on with blindness. People often said that you were blind because of something your parents did or your ancestors did, or that you had a, a, a predisposition to blindness because of some, uh, something that happened uh, her, in, in terms of heredity. But he didn't really quite go that far. He didn't blame her or her parents exactly, but it got him off the hook. And I will say he did come awfully close. Laura was loved by many, and one person who wanted to meet her in particular and wanted that more than to meet anyone else in America was Charles Dickens. He devoted a large part of a chapter in his book, American Notes, to her. She was mentioned by Charles Darwin in his book, Descent of Man. Dorothea Dix donated money for her education and, of course, was part of that endowment. And Sophia... Peabody, the wife of Nathaniel Hawthorne, was commissioned to do a sculpture, a bust of Laura. A liberty ship was named after her. Sophia's sister wanted Nathaniel Hawthorne to write a book about her, but he refused even to meet her, and that never happened. The only person more revered in Laura's time was Queen Victoria. It's amazing when you think about how you can have a bridge from one person to another, from one generation to another. It comes about in so many ways. When Dickens returned to England and wrote his book, American Notes, he could never know how important that would prove to be. Years later, the mother of a little deaf-blind girl in Alabama read that book and saw the light and found hope and an answer for her own daughter, Helen. Because, of course, like any mother, she wanted her daughter to have education, too. You might wonder if Helen and Laura met. Yes, but only once. Laura thought Helen was wild and badly behaved and said so. Helen stepped on her toes in that meeting. She really did. Laura and Helen were products of their times. Laura was prim, and she wanted order and uniformity in her life. She cared if you had clean fingernails. Helen had a spirit for adventure and wanted to be changing the world through causes she believed in that would help her and other deaf and deaf-blind people and blind people, too. Helen cared passionately for causes, and she was filled with a restless spirit to change and to bring about change. She did this through lectures and books, she wrote. So what in the end can we say about Laura Bridgman? She was called an educational masterpiece, and in many ways she was. She rose above adversity. So much of what we know about her, though, comes through the filter and the lens of Samuel Ridley Howe. We can never really know her completely, as we can never know anyone completely. She was limited by language and her ability to communicate. More than that, though, none of us ever choose to share all of ourselves. 
we are somewhat self-protective, no matter what time or place we live in. And I truly hope that Laura kept some of herself for herself alone. She was in some ways an educational pawn in a game to serve Hal's own ends and own future. She was, in many ways, his stepping stone to greater things. He learned that in many ways, Laura could not be molded. She became her own person. People change, and that's the definition of progress. And what starts it all? She'll always be known to us and to anyone else for her blindness and her deafness. And there's one other important thing. She was a novelty of her time, for a public eager for novelty. One of the things that happened with mechanization and industrialization is that although life became faster paced, people had more leisure time. They wanted to read books and go to museums and see exhibits, and Laura fit right into that. Was she flawed and imperfect? Of course, as we all are. But I call her a human because that's what she was. Laura came along at a time when people wanted life to slow down. They sensed that things were going to really become very fast. It's hard for us to imagine because we would never think that was true at that time. But she gave back to people a sense of simplicity and purity of thought the world was hungering for. Dr. Howe thought he knew Laura, but he really didn't. As I said, he was too involved with science to know her truly, to know her heart. Laura was the first, and there's a burden with being the first anything. Yes, there had been other people they attempted to teach who were deaf and blind, but she was the first that it really happened for, and the first of anything always receives scrutiny. She certainly did, and that's a burden. Hopes are high for the first. We count on anyone who is a first to change our world for us and to make things happen and bring about great change. Laura's life was burdened by the expectations of educators, philosophers, and psychologists. As for me, I like to think of her reading books, loving words, remembering fondly those early days of her life with her uncle Asa and all he taught her about the world. I like to see her as a person who did the best she could to enjoy her life, as we all must. In the end, we know her only to the degree she was able to let us know her. There was probably much more about her that would have been of great value for us to know that we'll never know. Laura has a right to that, and she had a right to it then. Thank you. I will unlock the key. Well, thank you, Bonnie, for that excellent presentation. Uh, I know you worked very hard on that, and you really talked about the life uh, of a woman. Frankly, I didn't uh, know. Uh, I want to ask you this question, if I can start, and if others have questions, um, just feel free to come on in you know, on this one. If you don't have a microphone, hit F8 and write your question and enter, and we'll try to read it into the record. What, what I want, that's my clock, sorry. What I want to ask you is, you said that Laura was revered um, second maybe only to Queen Victoria. Why haven't we heard about her? At least I haven't. Uh, Helen Keller far surpassed her. Uh, uh, and I think you touch on this, but is it because of Samuel Gridley Howell who shielded her with his prejudices? 
I think the reason that we don't know Laura nearly as well was because when Helen came along, she overshadowed her because, of course, Laura never wrote books. She didn't go to college. Helen did. Helen lectured. She traveled. Um, she traveled the world. Laura never did those things. Um, the reason that Laura was revered as she was was because the reports that were written about her and other students that were made annually by Dr. Howe were published in various places. People could read them. They could look forward to them almost as serials that, uh, where they were hearing the next entry. And, but yet that was a very, it wasn't as public a thing, so she wasn't out as much where people would have known her. And in her time, uh, she was revered very, very much by the people who knew about her and read those things, because people read a lot more. But she wasn't uh, out in the world as, as Helen Keller was later uh, and didn't achieve as much in terms of uh, notoriety, in terms of causes. Um, she was very much um, involved with Perkins and her immediate world. And she did have a broad correspondence, but nothing like Helen Keller would have had. And, of course, since Helen wrote books and, and traveled, it just made all the difference in the world. Bonnie, thank you very much. This is very good. <laughs> this is uh, excellent. Thank you so much. I was just wondering, maybe you may have answered this somehow during the... Uh, uh, I was here through the whole thing, but I was just wondering, how did she get to meet people like uh, Queen Victoria and Charles Dickens? How did these people abroad become aware of her? Well, as far as I know, she never met Queen Victoria, but she did meet Charles Dickens. I don't know how that happened exactly, but I would suspect that um, when Samuel Howe was in Europe, he was doing a lecture tour, and he was considered a great humanitarian. I didn't like him all that much, actually. But uh, he did do a lot of great things, but when he was in Europe, um, I believe he probably mingled with a lot of people, and if not that, that the reports he wrote that people uh, saw in newspapers um, alerted or helped people know about her, and in that sense, Dickens uh, read about her and he wanted to know about her. I didn't, they didn't actually say, but I would assume that's what happened. And so when he came to the States... Um, you know, she was the first. Here was this deaf-blind student learning language. And this appealed to people because we had come from a very romantic age. And so people thought, well, if she can learn language, this is really wonderful. You know, it, it was like a problem solved. It wasn't anything of the kind because it was really a struggle. But when he came to the States, he said the one thing he wanted more than anything else was to meet her. And so that's what he did. But she never met Queen Victoria, I'm certain. Bonnie, did you say that she lived in at Perkins for 52 years, and how old was she when she died? Laura was 60 when she died. Um, she lived from 1829 to 1889. She died on May 24th of uh, 1889. She had lost her, her uh, mother, I believe her father. Um, this one thing that her family did that was very strange was they had two other daughters, and they gave them the same names as her two older sisters who died of scarlet fever. And one of those, the second Mary, actually died of scarlet fever as well at the age of 17. Laura was very close to her, and because of that, um, she had sort of a religious conversion and ended up um, joining a Baptist church. Hello, everybody. This is Gary Wood from Lansing, Michigan. It sounded like Samuel uh, Gridley Howell seemed to be 
more of an overprotective type uh, in some ways. You know, one thing that Helen Keller said uh, was quoted as saying one time that she didn't believe in security. She said that she, uh, like you were saying, she wanted to uh, brave the new frontiers and stuff. She, she didn't want to be satisfied with things as they are, I think. If Samuel Howe was protective of anything, he was protective of his own interests and uh, caring for his own future. Um, he had some things to say about blind people that you would just, uh, that were probably and might still be considered kind of timely, but they're hurtful. For instance, Samuel Gridley Howe uh, believed that most blind people were coddled by their families. Does that sound familiar? And he believed that most blind people had uh, very, very flabby muscles and didn't get enough exercise. And, um, and he really believed that if you were, he called them lazy even. So uh, if, he, if you go with what he said um, and his belief about the harmony of the body, uh, keeping everything in sync, then you have to say that he would also have to believe that uh, if you didn't have physical exercise or enough physical exercise, you were not all that uh, keen mentally. So uh, he was pretty, he said some pretty shattering things at times. Um, and, and in a way, some of it's timely. It's good to get exercise. Some of these things were very good. Um, to be healthy is, is always a good thing, obviously. But uh, he, his way of going about it wasn't always the best. And I think a lot of times he just listened to, him, to himself. He, wasn't, he didn't care too much about what other people thought. If he believed in something, he was carried away by that belief. And I think that was related to his spirit of adventure. Um, he, did, he, was, he was in some trouble in his life at times. Uh, Bonnie, there's a question here, and I think I've got it uh, right. And maybe you've answered part of that. Uh, Courtney Stover writes... Uh, what uh, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but what what are some of the things about uh, uh, <clears throat> about uh, how you you didn't really like? Uh, and, and I think you may have uh, answered part of that. Well, he didn't listen enough to other people. He didn't care enough about their feelings. I understand he was an educator, and um, Dickens didn't like him. He thought he was cold and. Um, he didn't like Dickens either. He thought Dickens was kind of aloof. Uh, so they didn't take to each other all that much. But, um, but he was a person who just was carried away with his own press. And he, was, he had to get money for that school. And I understand all of those things. But he didn't really understand that people had feelings. He wanted to run things so much that he just didn't see anything else. And I don't think that was a good thing. And I think he put his teachers in very difficult positions um, in tying them up, uh, not being able to, not literally, but tying them up in a way where they couldn't tell students like Laura uh, what they wanted to know. He wanted to control things too much. And I don't, I think it was very unrealistic. I don't think, I understand why, because she was the first. But uh, you just can't live that way, and I, I hope that he learned it. But he was always trying to get himself out of a tight spot. He would always find a way to be able to save face for himself. And maybe that's a character trait and a personality trait, but I just don't like that. He did a lot of good things. Obviously, he cared about his students after they left by building those cottages. And he was hurt by the fact that people didn't 
employ blind people as much as he had hoped. He was way ahead of his time in that sense. He really wanted blind people to be employed, but it didn't happen the way he hoped. So there were good things about him, but overall as a person, I just didn't like him very much. He didn't come off well for me, although he did many good things. This was really a good presentation, and I actually um, didn't know until very recently, until I started reading different books and um, just for my own interest, I didn't know very much about Laura either, because Helen Keller just superseded everything, everyone, and Hal was more tyrannical, I thought, more of a dictator, and just the way he kept Laura hidden and tried to keep her for himself, it was, he was just so possessive. Yeah, and bear in mind, uh, Randy and others, as I recall, Helen didn't stay at Perkins very long. She, she broke out, but she had a very uh, wealthy family, but we'll hear about her, but she, she, as I remember, she didn't stay there Oh, no, never 52 years. She broke loose. She got away. And Laura uh, was, was uh, sheltered, absolutely, by the Perkins world, just as Mary Ingalls Wilder uh, spent a lot of time at, uh, at the school in Iowa and then with her family the rest of her life. She could hear, of course, uh, but she was blind. And uh, you, you know about her sister, as we know, Laura. But Mary just kind of faded away. They moved Randy around Sheldon. from family to family. So uh, being sheltered was a, was a common thing by families, and some families were really supportive and had wealth and could do something others couldn't. And how many blind people generally were going to college in 1850? Yeah, Helen was very lucky in that sense. Or even later, even when Helen Keller did go to college, um, she... She was very fortunate. Most people didn't have the opportunity to go to college. But Helen Keller was uh, much quicker in terms of learning. Um, they had learned how to teach uh, better by the time she came along. Um, she had advantages, just as we would have advantages today. Uh, the computer today would be what, say, the typewriter or braille writer was in Helen's day. So in that sense, it was easier, and her family was wealthy. But Laura's family, one of the <clears throat> misconceptions about Laura's family is that um, people say that the reason that Helen Keller got attention and Laura really didn't, uh, wasn't known as much by the public was um, because her family was poor. But they really weren't. They were prosperous farmers. And, uh, in fact, her uh, mother's uh, grandfather, I think it was, was uh, one of, the first settlers in a, a town in Vermont, which probably wouldn't seem like such a big deal, but um, but they were well um, placed there. They were uh, they really had roots there, and um, they just lived in different times. It, there was so much that had developed by the time Helen Keller came came along that, uh, and of course, as I say, she went to college and she was able to. Uh, she had someone traveling with her. She had Ann Sullivan traveling with her. So she was able to do so much that uh, Laura would not have had the, had the chance to do. And remember, for Dr. Howe, Laura, um, she had a public persona to really uh, show to the world. And so she always had to be um, portrayed in the best light. And she had some smooth, mood swings and was somewhat irritable at times. Um, and so maybe they felt that she really couldn't be counted on to come off the way she needed to. Helen was very, uh, I think, a lot more polished and understood that a lot better. 
Bonnie, in text chat, Jerry Cooper from Oklahoma asked you to correct something that she's heard. She says she's heard that Laura was the first independent deafblind person because she knew O&M and that Helen Keller did not know O&M because it wasn't around at that time. So what do you know about either of these statements? Uh, as I understand it, you're, this person is wanting to know whether she knew mobility. Is that what you're asking? That's it. And did Helen Keller know mobility? I would doubt very much. I don't know about Helen Keller, but I would doubt that in Laura's time she knew about mobility. She did um, walk through places that were familiar uh, to her. For instance, uh, one of the things they say about her is that when um, she lived at Perkins, she spent a lot of time wandering the halls trying to, get, trying to find somebody to talk to. Um, but there wasn't really much about her going out except with people. And um, maybe that was also because she couldn't hear, and there might have been, it might have been a bit dangerous for her to do that, too. Um, and when she traveled anywhere, for instance, when she went home, she was accompanied by her teacher. Um, so that was the only, those were the only references to any kind of travel um, that I have that she did. And, and as for Helen, that is something I don't know the answer to, but I'll keep it in mind for uh, next time. This is Norma. And I just, just a little bit of a word, I guess, uh, in favor of Dr. Howe. And I happen to be a Perkins alumnus. So, um, of course, I, I would have been very familiar with, uh, with Laura Bridgman, having lived next door to the cottage that's named uh, for her. But, you know, I think um, for a person to be a pioneer, uh, as he was in the education of blind children, um, requires maybe a person that has a certain amount of audacity now he made he he it might have been nice if he had been um, more welcoming of other people and other people's thoughts but in order to kind of be a pioneer you kind of have to bull your way through a lot of uh, public ignorance and so forth and I'm I'm thinking for example of Morris Frank who brought the pioneer seeing eye dog to the to the, uh, this country and who was a very audacious person and kind of had to be because he was being confronted with people with ignorance and so um, maybe it took that kind of personality to begin the kind of residential programs for blind children that Dr. Howe pioneered. Well, I think that you have a point. I think that's probably true and in the end he had to make whatever decisions uh, he felt were right, and of course, uh, he had to be a shield. I mean, this was a, we have to remember, she was an experiment of his, and, you know, you don't want anybody, if you have a scientific experiment, you don't want anybody to mess it up uh, or put anything into it that you don't want, and so he was protected because this was going to mean a lot in his life. It was going to mean a lot in her life, and it was going to mean a lot for other um, blind um, deaf students to come. So he was... I think very wrapped up in uh, organization and getting things started. Um, I think that was his. I think that was his talent. I don't think he was. He said he wasn't a very good um, financial person. Uh, he was not a good public speaker. Um, so I don't know that he always was able to portray himself very very well. But he knew how to promote. That was his talent. He was an educator, and he was at heart. A true promoter. I think also that Samuel Howell reminds me of some of the early 
like what you were saying earlier, some of the earlier counselors that I that I've known, you know, that they felt that their way was the right way, and a lot of times, but uh, now uh, they're more open to other points of view for uh, than they used to be, like for for blind people and what they wanted to do. A lot of them, they if they wanted to do certain things, some counselors kind of disagreed with that. It seems like years ago. We'll, uh, we'll be officially closing here shortly or whatever, but um, I think that Norma has a very good point. Uh, I agree with what Bonnie says. He probably wasn't a very nice person, but he had to be forthright. Someone had to step up. And, of course, we rate him looking at our times now. Many of the things he did, uh, we wouldn't tolerate today. Uh, but this is today, and that was yesterday. Um, sadly, in a way... Laura, being first, was his sacrificial lamb. He would protect her. She would promote the Perkins image. She would be a lady, you know, and that's the way he molded her. And that was her whole world. Yes, I would have liked her to go to college and have an Ann Sullivan Macy, but we weren't ready yet. Society wasn't ready yet. And uh, fortunately, another giant that we're going to hear about, Helen Keller, stepped up to promote the cause of deafblind people and blind people. Ironically, though, with Laura, the thing that's really interesting about her that many people say is that really when Helen Keller did come along, she embodied a lot of what, even though she had very liberal leanings, um, she embodied a lot of what um, Howe had really been looking for in Laura. And that's very strange because, of course, they never met. Um, and, you know, he, was, he died in 1876 of a brain tumor. And uh, so that was never going to happen. But um, she really did embody a lot of what, what he w really was hoping Laura would have been or could have been. I just got the feeling that he really was a person who um, stayed with a thing for a while and then got interested in something else. Not that he didn't still care, because obviously he built those colleges and he cared about the students who wrote and said that they couldn't find jobs and could they please come back. So... He did a lot, and, and he had a huge job ahead of him to do. Um, and yes, uh, you're right about everything you said, Bob, about Laura being the first. It's tough to be the first. It really is. I, have a lot, I had a lot of sympathy for her. I really did. Well, I don't see anything else in text chat, Bonnie. Uh, Bonnie, Ben Watson from Madison, Georgia, and an um, uh, excellent presentation. And I just wanted to know what you felt some of the lessons were from Laura. And I'll make one comment, and that is that that uh, um, I, I think the changing of times. Uh, Helen was born uh, with what what uh, she was able to accomplish. I think probably some privilege, some wealth didn't hurt anything. But you know, hey, um, Laura. Uh, Laura needs to be known about, and I think you have done a great job of telling us about her. So what are some of the lessons you think we can learn from Laura's life that we can even use today? Well, I think what I really liked about Laura was that, for the most part, she was enthusiastic about life. She was always wanting to learn. She was curious. She wanted to know more than she knew. She was hungry for knowledge. And I think that is something that a lot of people lose. She maintained a sense of wonder about the world. And she was able to rise above adversity. Um, so many times today when people have problems, they moan or they say a job is too hard. 
And Laura's life was, yes, shielded in many ways, but certainly she had a tough way to go. Um, and she had many losses. Um, she had many fears, and yet she um, prevailed, and she kept her contact with her family alive, uh, which I think is hard to do in those kinds of situations. Um, she was able to uh, be a, have a place in the world, and I think probably the lesson that I would say I really got from her is that whatever your circumstances, um, you can find happiness in the world and find a place in it for you uh, and probably find something to do that will be of value to the world and leave a mark. And if I were to say anything about her, I think that's what she did. Um, and I think she did it very I think she did it very well. I think she would have done more if she had lived at another time. It's always interesting to speculate about that. If you reversed it and Helen had lived in her time instead of the other way, other way around, who knows? Um, but she lived when she lived, and, uh, and I hope she was happy. And I think most of all, um, she was playful and uh, sensitive to others for the most part. Um, she... I think she was real, and, and I guess that's all I would say. I hope that answers your question. Bonnie, I think you have, and with that, we're going to conclude uh, this event tonight. Stay tuned for part two, in which we look at the life of Helen Keller. And you guys can talk all night and all that if you wish. That's fine. The room is here. Um, tomorrow night, Books and Beyond, we meet Devin Wilkins. I know Devin Wilkins, and she's going to be a great interview. She's a wonderful lady. Okay, with that, we say thank you, and we'll see you when we talk to you again. Thank you. So has the date been determined for Part 2 as yet? No, we haven't uh, decided about that. Uh, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure whether I can get it together in a month. I think I, I, I might be able to. There's an awful lot to read about Helen Keller. There was a lot to read about Laura Bridget, and I had lo loads of stuff I never used. Um, but um, some of it was repetitive, but, you know, some of it was, was new and different. Um, but, um, no, we haven't decided on a date exactly. It's ironic.